Sarai, how's it going? Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Do you remember way back when, to last week, when we interviewed Paul B. Cutler? Yes. Who was a musician and a producer, right? Correct. And I had a little stack of records, quite a big stack of things yes. that he worked on. Well, likewise, today we're talking to a musician. I got a little stack too. Um, to a musician and producer again, aren't we? Uh, yes. And for our listeners today, look, Jeff and I, right now, we're on a two for two streak <laughs> of going into our unicorn list. But Jeff, let's see if our listeners can find the common link between these items, these bands, artists. Okay. 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 With me? Yep. The Quick. Yes. Sparks. Okay. 2020. Okay. Jupiter Affect. Mm -hmm. And Helen Reddy. Wait a minute. You just threw a curveball in there. <laughs> no, I did not. These are all connected. I mean, the and these are only five of a bajillion more. Yeah, 500 plus. <laughs> exactly. Of artists that have recorded with and been produced by the great Earl Mankey. Yes. yes. Solo artist in and of his own right. Yeah, that too. That too. But yeah, uh, and if anyone disbelieves it, all you have to do is do your own little research on a little little site Jeff and I love to call Discogs. Indeed, <laughs> and yes. You'll see all these things. But also, I mean, besides the great honor of having Earl Mankey on the show today, we're also going to be joined by our very beloved guest host, Ronnie Barnett. Yes. Yeah. So amazing. And as far as I know, the Muffs never produced or engineered by Earl Mankey. That, I think that's true. I think that's And true. Uh, that's surprising because Earl Mankey has a very long list of artists that he's worked with so yeah and a lot of this time or a lot of those recordings most if not all were done in the kitchen or in his house so yeah <laughs> i, I want to know about the psychedelic shack so. earl psychedelic shack i mean it has produced some amazing albums and great sounds Indeed. and uh i'm really looking forward to this so yeah let's get started Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agroviar. Let's get groovy. All right, so for our listeners today, first of all, we want to welcome our guest host extraordinaire, Ronnie Barnett. Yay. Hey y'all! <laughs> but the unicorn of all unicorns, Jeff, for us, the great producer, musician, engineer—I mean, solo artist—we can go on and on and on. The great Earl Mankey. Thank oh. you and welcome. Yay for me! <laughs> for us too. For us too. Whew. So we had a lot of questions. Uh, last week, we interviewed um, Paul B. Cutler, who is a musician and producer, a guitar player who's played with Dream Syndicate and produced a large stack of 
records that I own in my record collection over here. Um, likewise, I have a stack of records that you've worked on, Earl, and the Discogs pay page that we go to that we do some of our research on has a, a lot of records that you've worked on. But um, of course, the three o'clock, uh, Jupiter Effect, Permanent Green. Writers. Yes, so many that um, we talk about a lot on our podcast have a direct impact to you. So we wanted to thank you for coming on and welcome to the show, Earl. Great. Well, I, I've heard just about all of those shows, especially the Paisley Underground types. And I've been a little, I'm a little on the shy side that way. So I just enjoyed listening to them. But I, I knew that uh, everything that they was remembering, that they were remembering, that I had already forgotten. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, that's where I'm a little insecure about coming up with the, uh, the fan info. Uh, a lot to remember, Earl. You've, you've done a lot, so. We'll get to that. And we're going to talk about Helen Reddy, too. Um, yes. But but we won't start with that. Go, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I figured that the place that we could start at would be with this little band here, Sparks. Oh, I like those guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, this guy who kind of looks like Rudy Sarzo, I would say, is actually Earl Hankin, our original guitar player. With a spider on his neck. He, he lives. Yes. I want to talk about what you're wearing there, Earl. Is that a net shirt? Like, I always thought it was like a net yeah, it's a net shirt. I think uh, my wife may have come up with that because it's it's not a a man it's not a very manly shirt, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was glam. You still have it? Do you still have that in the store? Uh, no, I don't have any okay. of that stuff. Some uh, there was a, a guy when I worked for the Beach Boys. There was a guy there that uh, wanted to borrow it for his wife, and he borrowed it, and, and he never gave it back to me. This was the velvet <laughs> one, which is on the other ones. And uh, and finally, uh, you know, I asked him one day, are you ever going to give me that back? He goes, what? You wouldn't wear that, would you? <laughs> so, and I said, well, no. <laughs> so that was the last. I've never heard of it since then. I uh, can see why he would want his wife to wear that net shirt. <laughs> so um, Half Nelson was how the band started out, Sparks. Do you recall um, the early days of the Sparks and getting that going? And how oh that yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of the standard story. But uh, we, uh, I had been in bands before that, a uh, number of bands actually, and uh, and I was going to UCLA and I went to the music building to see if I could find a band there to join, and they had a, a you know a posting on the bulletin board, so I followed it up and I met Ron and Russ and uh, we spent probably couple of years recording because I was a recording guy at that point I had a two track tape recorder actually a quarter track they call it and I'd been recording myself and I said well let's just record the band and so we spent two years recording demos and such uh, for in order to get a record deal which we actually did so wow well so you took those demos and uh, did you send those to different labels uh, well you know I'm I'm pretty much a musician in a band. That's that's my, in my own head, that's what I am. And I met these guys and they were from the art department and the film department, you know, and they 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 knew all of this stuff. Like, like when you go to a hangout of record company people and they talk about all of this 
how the system works and how cool that guy was and what he was wearing and who he knew. And I don't know any of that, any, <laughs> none of that. Well, they know all that though. I, I think I won't say they knew it, but they knew that was their world. They'd been in the art department and such, and they knew how the hierarchy of, uh, you know, getting signed and everything was. So, so they, I, the thing that sticks in my head is we, when we finally got the package, the, the tape recorded a certain number of songs, they made up a package like uh, there's a name for this, but a, a, a thing that you take around and hand to the label, you know, and, and it was this, it was a big box and it was full of videos and, and postcards and art pieces of art and little, you know, I don't know, that art things, you know, <laughs> it was really a big deal. And, and so they would hand that to the, you know, the A&R guy at the label and he'd, he'd never seen anything like that, you know? It's a, let me, I have to show with my hands. He'd never seen anything <laughs> wow. like that, you know? Yeah. It's a big wow. package, you know? And so, so it got their attention right off the bat. And then uh, we, would, we would get a meeting with the A&R guys and we'd go up to the office at the label, whatever the label happened to be. And they would always be surprised because we weren't like any other bands. I mean, I, that was just the bottom line. There, there was nobody in town like us, maybe in any town. <laughs> and, yeah. and so we caught their attention and we got lots of nibbles from a lot of companies. And we were even signed to Capitol Records for about 10 minutes. And then that fell, fell apart. And then we finally got our deal with uh, with Warner Brothers Bearsville, and uh, and I you know I owe it to them and their gung ho you know attitude, their artistic attitude. Again, I'm a guy who plays guitar in a band, yeah. and uh, and records things, and <laughs> uh, you know I, I will say I mean, this is I'm kind of doing a sidetrack, but I guess that's my job. So <laughs> you know the they were real art guys. And, and I wasn't, but it was a period, this was the late 60s, maybe even early 70s, when if you were in a band or you were the Beatles, let's say, you, you always tried to, to break new ground, to do something that no one had ever done and to shock people and to, you know, do something new. And every other band, I, I, I'm exaggerating, most other bands there's a there's a checklist, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna include punk in this, you know. There's there's a way for hardcore punk to just be hardcore punk. You don't stray from that, and you and if you do it right and you get a lot of fans, you're a star. But otherwise, you never get noticed. Well, well, we weren't that kind of band, you know. We were we were we were trying to do something different, and that was like my format, the formation of my art. If, if for the first time I ever thought of it as art, probably. But I've always thought that trying to be different, trying to do something that people hadn't done, and trying to do it really in a way that I had never done, a really difficult way to do something that most people consider easily, easily done. Um, that was, that's kind of my thing, you know, and it has turned out to be just the absolute wrong thing to do if, <laughs> if you're ever trying to be famous, you know, rich and famous, but it was a lot of fun. So that's my story. That's probably the Were end. you guys playing live um, before the record much, Earl, or was it mainly? Oh, you studio? mean back in those days or what? No, no, I mean, uh, I mean, the early Half Nelson. Like, did Half oh. Nelson, were you uh, playing much live well, or was it mainly we, we studio? We played a few. We got a manager. Uh, at the time that we were also looking for labels, there was a manager that got us, uh, actually, uh, Mike Burns, I should mention him. He he did way more than just, uh, you know, be our manager for the labels. He He paid for an entire demo album. 
And he was a big, big, big fan of Sparks. And he got us a few gigs too, which were, they weren't famous gigs. In fact, it was a little embarrassing being Sparks and playing in the same venues that everyone else played in, you know. It's, um, I don't know, what was it? Some, you know, one of them, this wasn't at that point, but we played a gig, a famous gig in Houston with uh, uh, some sweaty, sweaty, hard, heavy metal band. I can't remember their name, but, um, <laughs> but you know, we were, Russell was doing his posing on the stage and, you know, and all the audience were like Texans, you know, and it didn't go over very well. And, oh, and that was the one where Russell hit his head with the, the sledgehammer and oh, yes. had to go to the hospital. So I remember that. <laughs> but then we played, we played in Hollywood with um, a well-known that I've forgotten the name of him, a piano player that is sort of a singer songwriter, piano player had a pretty nice venue down in Hollywood, but the audience was not our audience. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we were uncomfortable there. I can't honestly remember too many more live venues before yeah. we got signed. But uh, that one was an interesting one, too, because we knew we were small time, but we wanted to be big time. <clears throat> so we all got uh, jumpsuit, you know, not jumpsuits, that's probably not the right name. But, you know, when your mechanic works on a car and he well, wears coveralls. Oh. Well, yes. we all got coveralls and we all uh, came out on the stage to set up our amps and stuff because we didn't want people to think we didn't have roadies. And so we were, <laughs> we were the roadies. And then we went and we changed our clothes and we came out looking ridiculous. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no one recognized us, I'm sure. That's hilarious. So Earl, it's talking about live shows. Did Queen ever open up for you guys for Spike? Oh yeah, a famous, famous story at the, uh, um, at the uh, heck. What's it? Marquee Club. Marquee Club in London. Yeah. But we, you know, we were on a label. Oh, I, I have a Queen story before that that led me up to it. Uh, the, the black velvet coat that's on one of the album covers. Uh, I bought that at Kensington Market in, in Kensington, of course, in London. And, uh, and I wandered through the market and found this coat. Yeah, uh, well, that's a green velvet, but there's a black velvet somewhere as well. Okay. And uh, and and so uh, so I went up and you know went to buy the coat, and there were two guys in the in the booth, and they you know pushed and pulled and told me how great I looked, and it turned out to be the drummer and the singer from Queen, wow. and it was their booth, and uh, so they told me about how they were recording an album at um, at the well-known studio that I've forgotten the name of, and they invited us there to visit. And um, the, the, we never did visit, but uh, they invited us. And then, and then a few weeks later, we played with them at the Marquee Club, but because we had a record deal and they didn't yet, I assume they didn't have one yet, uh, we were top bill. And, uh, and we got to see, and the, there's a green room at the Marquee Club. It's about twice the size of a closet. And we were all in the closet and we were all getting undressed. And I got to see the underwear that Queen wore. Whoa. <laughs> polka dots Whoa. And, and, uh, you know, and little horses and stuff on their underwear. So incredible. Uh, that's the way incredible. Yeah. So I, I love a lot of the inside stories. I love that you blew them off, Earl. You blew off that invitation <laughs> to go go to the studio. Yeah. Well, I think it had more to do with scheduling. We didn't dislike them. And uh and then right. we actually ended up visiting the studio later, but it was at, it was after they I mean, they they weren't in that night. Let's put it that way. They just visited the studio. <laughs> Did you guys joke about the underwear, or were you like, uh, that, "Oh, I actually like this"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, all right, jumping ahead, what what how how, do, how does the original band uh, break up? What 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 how does it implode after yeah, the second well, album? We can't, you know, things were pretty cool. Lines around the block at the Marquee Club when we we got a, a, an opportunity to go to Zermatt to ski over Christmas vacation, and so we took it, and so that meant that uh, we weren't at the Marquee Club that that night. And uh, and we heard that there, that we heard this. I hope it's true that there were people out there yelling, more, you know, sparks, 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 because we weren't there. But we did have long lines. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but at that point we were getting some popularity in London, and uh, so that was uh, that was a good story, I guess. Uh, oh, so the, yeah. So you yeah. say what happened? So that was get your adrenaline going, right? If you, you're in that state. Well, then we went back to L.A. and um, then we and we played the whiskey about another twelve times, and nobody in LA cared or knew or had any interest in Sparks, and uh, and the band sort of. And personally, I had graduated, and I think probably Russell had graduated by then too from UCLA, and so uh, it was time to get a job, and I got a job uh, building the Beach Boys console, which turned out to be lucky for me. And Ron and Russ, uh, with nothing happening, said, uh, we're going back to England. And they went back to England. And, uh, and you know, they did their, their magic. And they found a band and, and a producer and all. And they made, I hate to admit it, probably the best record they ever made. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, that's, I mean, I'm a guitar guy. And to me, that first, that, that I guess it would be the third album. That album of theirs in England was a guitar album. And I, I thought yeah. it was really great. That's the kind of band I wanted to be. And yeah. um, so then, you know, then they went off into more keyboard stuff. And I have to admit, I kind of drifted away in my interest was the more keyboardy they got. But um, that was uh, that was why they took off for England. And it was great for them. And uh, yeah. uh, we seem to be on good terms, if that's an issue. They came back yeah. and we did a little recording uh, with them or I did a little recording with them. And we visited at their show when they were there, and we visited at their house, and we had had a pretty good, you know, get together for a while. But then we kind of lost touch over the years. So, now, now did you want to pursue uh, playing music more after that, or did you just kind of fall into the uh, studio side of things? And definitely the studio side. Yeah. Uh, I let's see when I always recorded myself at home. Always, uh, and then and then when I started working for the Beach Boys, I was able to uh, to use the equipment to to be any you know to really record myself. I didn't have to do it on quarter tracks at home or anything like that. I had a four track at home, by the way, at that point. But uh, but the Beach Boys had a sixteen and then a twenty four track at that time, and so I started recording my own stuff, uh, my own songs and. Uh, still no band, but as I, you know, my real, I said, I've got to make a, you know, some money at this deal or I'm going to fall apart. So, you know, I really wanted to be a producer, making records and recording. That was probably even above a band. That was more what I liked doing was just recording music. And uh, so, so let's see. Oh, I don't know. So, uh, oh, oh, I know, I know. Then, then came the, uh, the runaways. And uh, and I was a big, 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 big fan of uh, girl groups in the 60s because I'm a 60s guy. There's no no getting around it. And and I thought, oh, right, the Runaways, this is here's a girl group and they're playing guitars. What could be better than this? So I called Kim Fowley and asked him if I could produce them. And he, he basically laughed in my face. 
but um, uh, but the, that was Kim Fowley. That's probably you know people say weird things about Kim Fowley, but that was my first real connection to the music industry, and and he was the guy. I mean he they he called me up after you know a few months after I'd asked about the Runaways and uh, and said, did you want to produce the Quick? Uh, I'm sure largely because the Quick were big Sparks fans too. Yeah, yeah. that album, and so. Um, so I said, heck yeah, and, and did the quick album. And I, you know, at that point, I could, had, had a more serious uh, route into being a producer. And so that was really where my focus became at that time. And then uh, because of that, uh, things rolled on and I was able to do more of my own recording. And the guys, two of the guys in the quick and my brother, Jim from Sparks, uh, we formed a band. And so that was my only band thing between Sparks and the rest of my life. And, and we practiced for a few, a few months and I, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't the right guy for them. I'm, I, Danny Wilde was my favorite singer, which is from, from the quick. And so that's why I wanted to have this band. And I discovered that with my production stuff and my engineering and the band, uh, that, Honestly, uh, those guys were better at being in a band than I was, and I dropped out. And uh, and then as a result, probably I can't speak for Jim, but then Jim dropped out, and uh, and then they went on to do an album without us, and or at least to finish the album that we had started. Let's put it that way. And uh, that band was Cigarettes at the time that uh, that I re that I was in it that I remember. <laughs> And that was my only only band. So when that when that fell apart, then that was the last time I ever did any band stuff. Gotcha. Cigarettes. I've never heard of that. I've yeah, never you may never yeah. hear of them again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Danny Wilde and um, oh, I'm so bad at names. The bass player from the Quick, uh, and my brother and me. And, yeah. Uh, so oh oh, and a drummer and a drummer that I've also forgotten. <laughs> so. Well, knowing you, you probably recorded. This would be a great archival release. I think all. we started, some of the recordings were by way of me, but then the final deal was, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I lost touch after that, so I don't know where it went, but I know there's an album now with that name on it. Yeah, gotcha. I think Ian was the bass player, right, from the quick? Ian, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. A very, very, <laughs> very good bass player. You'd be proud to have him in your band. He was yeah. very much like, uh, you know, he sound, we sounded like the Who when he was playing bass. He, he wow. was very good. Nice. Well, going back to the beach, you building the Beach Boys studio, Earl, how, how did you meet the Beach Boys? How did you fall into that? Well, world? that was pretty accidental. But, uh, you know, being a UCLA guy, I went to the bulletin board again. And there was on the bulletin board, it said, oh, electronic engineer wanted to, uh, uh, to what it, to build recording console. I mean, it wasn't literally build it. There was another another guy with a, a physics major who had built it up to a certain stage, and he needed help apparently, or at least he hired me. And so uh, he and I uh, did the the last stages of this console. Which oh, which okay. There's a story behind the console if that matters. The Beach Boys had actually used the console in Holland for their Holland album. And uh, and it fell on the tarmac uh, when they were taking it off the airplane. I, I don't know if it bounced, but you know consoles weigh a lot, and it wasn't good. Yeah. So the first thing to do was to get that console working, 
And then we expanded it into being a quad console, but the thing of the past, but there was quad back in those days. And, mm -hmm. uh, and at a certain point, the original guy, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but he was a great guy, also, let me say that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he said, enough of this. Uh, here's Earl. He knows everything about this console. He said it to the Beach Boys because they were the ones who paid for it. Here's yeah. Earl. You can have the console and you can have Earl. Uh, don't ever call me again. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so I was there, I don't know, a number of months, probably three months or more, uh, just getting the thing set up and working. And, and this, they were building a studio around it too. So there was a lot of stuff to be done. And then uh, finished that and it got it working. And at that point, I was able to do my first recording session, uh, which was uh, uh, Elton John, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me with the wow. Beach Boys singing background and a wonderful song, a wonderful background yeah. and uh, a good thing for my credits. So, uh, so, it, and it, so it just kind of went from there that being at the Beach Boys studio was good for me because all I had to do was say, you know, I'm working here, come and record with me and then all the bands would like to work with me. So that was good. So I imagine that uh, working with the Beach Boys that led to working on Dennis Wilson's Pacific Ocean Blues album yeah, yeah. In fact, probably uh, at least half of my time at the studio was spent on Dennis because he he every uh, Dennis and Carl came in regularly. Brian came in once in a blue moon, and everybody you know fawned over him, and all his session musicians came in. It was a big deal when Brian came, but Dennis and Carl were there all the time, and Dennis was there even more than Carl. And Carl would often come in the afternoon. And then, uh, and then he'd go home, and Den Dennis would come in, and Dennis would work till two or three in the morning, and uh, and so that would be me. Nobody else wanted to work with Dennis till two or three in the morning, and uh, and so we spent a lot of time, especially on that the songs that went onto that album, and I, uh, with all of those guys, I was able to kind of polish my chops, you know that hours would go by while they're working out parts and, and repeating parts and maybe fixing parts and, and trying to get one part right. And I would have the whole studio there to myself to just do whatever I want. So I, they were kind of my experiment. And sometimes it would work and sometimes uh, it wouldn't work, but uh, it was fun. Got to be adventurous at the Beach Boys studio. Oh, uh, speaking oh, so of that. About Dennis. So oh, yeah, cool. so a lot of Dennis. And, uh, and then about the yeah, so that, that Pacific Ocean Blue was actually released in its entirety while I was still there. It's weird about Beach Boy albums, you know, they'll, they'll record a few songs and then they'll take something from the distant past and put it on the album and, and maybe even something that was for a different project. And each album as you go through time, and this has been that way forever, uh, is things that just were on the shelf that, that got put into this album. And so, so things that I did, because I was there for four and a half years or something like that, and maybe five, and, and things that I did would not show up until, you know, 10 years after I'd left the, the studio, you know, uh, and, and some projects that were weird projects by the other members would get mixed into things by the Beach Boys and so on. And so, so I have a period that I worked there and my name is certainly on anything that I worked there for. And then, and then succeeding albums after that uh, would my name, well, my name might be on it. I hope that it would be. And, and then some things though on the albums that I worked with were done 
you know, late 60s or something like that, and they'd go on to the album. So, wow. anyway. No, no, after that Dennis record, we got to talk about Beach Boys Love You, like, um, oh, which is yeah. a fan favorite, and it's an incredible record, and, and it's not the usual what you not the usual that's the beauty yeah. of it <laughs> yes yes uh essentially was that a brian solo record to start with without a doubt yeah i mean of course the story which is true is is that he was um uh you know had landy was his psychiatrist and landy set up a schedule for him you have to go here at and i'm going to say 10 o'clock in the morning because that's probably what it would usually be and you have to work until I'm going to say two o'clock and, and all you have to do is write and play, you know? And so, you know, and oh, and if you, here's the interesting part, if you do a good job, you'll get to smoke a joint at the end of it. And wow. so that was, <laughs> Reward. Yes. That, yeah. So that was an encouragement for Brian, but the beauty of it for me was I often got to talk with Brian, you know, he'd be out there on and away on his piano. And I, I especially, I was a big fan of all of the, uh, um, Phil Spector productions up to that time and so was Brian so we got to talk a lot about what he got from Phil Spector and what Phil Spector did and and why you know what Brian thought about the music and such and and how he how he constructed how he arranged the, the pieces and so on and uh, it was educational for me and a lot of fun too or you could catch him on a different day and you, especially if you were too aggressive going up to Brian, you know, to say, hey, uh, Brian, uh, Brian would back away and he'd back away and he'd back away until he'd get over. I'm, I'm remembering one case where uh, he went in the reception room we had and he shut the door <laughs> and I couldn't talk to him anymore. <laughs> I, apparently I scared him. <laughs> that, I, I envision those sessions went on for a long time. Like that, like, like it was spread out, I would imagine, like, or, or, yeah. or was it well, conceived Brian, as a record? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, those Lendy things, they were spread out and in little bits. The, the, the Love You definitely took a long time. But the other Brian projects, like uh, 15 Big Ones, I'm thinking of especially, that was like somebody said Brian was going to come into the studio tonight. Uh, uh, Tricia, the secretary, called all of his friends who were studio musicians, and the room was packed with studio musicians. And Brian came in and was, you know, oh, my gosh. And they'd and he and he'd say to the guys, "Okay, we're going to BS our way through this one." And uh, and 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 blam, 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 blam. And and my my story that I love to tell is is that one of the songs, like now I can't remember the song, but it, you know, they often had uh, two basses, you know, a, a stand-up bass and an electric bass. And during this run-through, they the bass guys, you could hear on the tracks, they were working out the parts and saying, this is, you know, there's a G note here and so on. And they were working it out through the song, testing each other and so on. And then the song was over and Brian said, that's great, guys. <laughs> that's a take. And so that's that went on the album. <laughs> those, <laughs> those guys working out their bass parts during the song. Wow. First so they, they were quick sessions. Oh, and oh yeah. And, and then the comment about, well, we'll BS our way through this. That was... Uh, Sid Sharp, the string guys, uh, the string uh, leader, I mean, he, just, he was a leader of the sessions for Brian's string sessions. And, uh, 
And so they're putting strings on some of the songs and Brian would just go out and talk to Sid and say, let's do this, this, and this. And that was his first comment was, we're gonna BS our way through this because there's no score or anything for the string section to read. And he'd tell them what he wanted and Sid would tell the string section what to do and they would play the strings and it would work. Uh, that was, I, I got the feeling that wasn't the first time they'd ever done that before. That, that seems to be one of the ways that Brian would work with strings. That was fun time. <laughs> Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have, there's so many records that I wanted to bring up that you've worked on, Earl. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit more about these records, um, your own records. Oh, yeah. yeah. You've released a few of your own records under your own name. I think you're holding them in your hand right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, yeah. So um, can you talk about putting these out versus um, being in a band or um, and well, doing yeah. work? Yeah, I never really, uh, never been a music industry guy. So putting them out is a whole separate thing for me. I mean, recording them was big, fun, exciting. I loved doing it, especially Mau Mau is kind of the first big deal that I tried to do. And uh, there was a, uh, a, a there was a song, Ain't Gonna Step On You Again, I think that's the title, by uh, the guy that produced, Elton John. Uh, he was the engineer for it. And, uh, and I just loved that. It was like, it was like a thousand instruments, marching, screaming, pounding, you know, and it was, a, it was an English uh, release. And so I, I assume it made it to the English charts, but I liked it. Anyway, when I was working with Elton John later on, the engineer told me, yeah, I had to become a producer because I was such a terrible engineer. But uh, <laughs> because I had pointed out that song to him and he was embarrassed by it. But it was, <laughs> it was a formative record for me. That's so cool. uh, uh, what were we talking about? So your solo. Oh, my stuff, yeah. <laughs> so, so that Mau Mau was the first thing that I was able to do after the Beach Boys studio was rolling. And, and so I was able to have all these tracks, uh, whereas before it was always sound on sound on sound on sound on sound and, and lots and lots of hiss. But that was a real record. And so, uh, you know, I got I got my wife to sing on it. I got the uh, secretary of the studio, Tricia, to sing on it. And I got, um, uh, let's see, who else was was cool? Oh, my brother. My brother, Jim, played bass. And um, uh and and I did just about everything else probably. There must be some something on. There. Oh yeah, and uh, Jan Uvena. For some reason, I remember his name. U v e n a. Jan. Uh, he was the drummer on that. And 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 that. By the way, that's kind of my. That was always my method of laying something down. I, if I could get a rhythm to follow, because I'm really strict as a producer about not everybody has to play the same thing and not you know they have to a band has to listen to each other when they play that's my rule and uh and so i didn't have a band and i was kind of breaking new ground as being just a solo guy on a multi-track the other people had done it but this is pretty far back there and uh so jan would play the song and uh and i didn't know what the song was and then i'd go up and i'd, I'd go back and i'd make a song to it turned out to be mau mau and uh, and then afterwards, if there are some drum overdubs too, especially in the outro, uh, that he would over he overdubbed to that. And so uh, so that was just all of these people on a 24 track for the first time. And um, 
uh, and it, uh, it it had it was it was all 24 tracks and then lots of bouncing. So I'm, wow. I'm going to take a wild guess and say 50 to 70 tracks probably to do. Wow. That. Wow. It's not, it, you know, but this is again my production rule. It doesn't it's not necessarily a big mess with 50 to 70 tracks if everyone's listening to each other and playing the right thing so that they all support each other. And that's that's just rule number one, I think, for all recording. Everybody should do that. Anyway, that we, should, was, uh, Mau Mau. we should also point out that 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 single is on Bomp Records. Bomp, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Sparks manager, when we were in England, uh, can't remember his name. Uh, doesn't say anybody else's name on there, does it? No. Oh, Exhibit J. His name started with a J. It was his label uh, or his name, but for uh, some reason I can't think of it. Doesn't really. Oh, I know. He JJ was in, uh, Huh? The label says JJ. J dash J. All right. Um, oh, if I could remember these names. John's Children. He was John of John's Children. Oh. <laughs> and, and John's Children had some great songs that we, we were fans of. Uh, anyway, John uh, was Sparks manager over there in England, uh, hired by the record label to just keep us in line. And then when we came back here, uh, he he moved back to LA too. And uh, his first project, I think he put together was the Dickies, which was fairly sick. Oh yeah, he that's yeah, that's a good story. He and I uh, went over to uh, A and M Records and and presented the Dickies album to A and M to say, you know, uh, these guys are great. And I didn't know much about labels, but uh, but John uh, pogoed while he played the album. And so then everybody <laughs> at AM knew this must be the thing they had to sign because John was able to pogo to it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. John, John Hewlett. Hewlett. That's his name, Hewlett. Hewlett. Nice. So the so Sparks. I forget where that brought us to, how I got there. But uh, so when I, the Sparks did their pitch, they had a big box of a bunch of art goodies. Who, who did? The Spark. Who? When you said Sparks, did their. Oh, pitch. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And then the man and Dickies, their pitch was a. Pogo and, and <laughs> yeah, that's right. John, this is this is how you get signed by major labels. No, kids. John from John's <laughs> Children Pogo to get the Dickies their deal with A and M. This is incredible. Deal. That's how yeah, it works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, um, going. To, I, I know we're running out of time. Um, I want to talk about the Runaways, Queens of Noise. Now, now, you got to say it, it. There's always rumors that the Runaways didn't play on these records. Like, I mean, oh, they played everything. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that yeah. was my attraction to them. These girls who could play guitar and not just yeah. play guitar, you know, not just a few chords. They, boy, they were really good, you know. And, yeah. uh, and so, uh, so that album was there, was them. There were, there were issues in the band, you know, they're kind of the, the metal contingent and, I won't say that Cherie was the non-metal contingent, but when when uh, when Kim Fowley would write a song for her, it would turn out to be kind of one of these sappier songs on the record, you know. And yeah. and there was no hope for it, and no matter who was backing it up, it was it was that kind of a song. And uh, so she was more the middle of the road style songs, and then and then uh, uh, Joan and um, oh heck, who's my favorite guitar player? Lita Ford. Lita Ford. Lita, yeah. yeah, and Lita, Lita. I wish I could play like Lita. She was yeah. great. Uh, they, they, they would support all of these things, and their drummer was great too. They were just a good band. That's all there was to yeah. it. And so my concept was: all right, '60s girls group 
because that's what I really love being from the 60s uh, with guitar, you know, and sometimes it really worked and sometimes it didn't. And, uh, for, you know, for, in hindsight, when they went on to be uh, in, in Japan, just a straight metal band, you know, it you know, was like, oh, Earl, you had uh, all the wrong idea for these girls. But I still love the idea. Like, uh, I love playing with fire, uh, yeah. you know, with harmonies and guitar and still, uh, was it not still in Hollywood, but the, the um, something about Hollywood, the girl who was, uh, I can't remember. But the, the point is, a heart-wrenching guitar yeah. solo and and story, you know, with with rock feeling that just terrific. I loved them. To me, right. that was a girl group with guitars, and that portion of the album, that that approach from the album was great. And I still, you know, I'd stand behind the whole idea still because I like listening yeah. to those types of songs. So sorry, uh, sorry, I wasn't no. a metal guy. So <laughs> so so after that, you and Kim Fowley take on Helen Reddy. <laughs> Yeah, crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Helen Ruddy, who was uh, a, a bit a, a big star at the time. Yeah, yeah. Kim, um, Kim said that uh, she just wanted uh, street cred, and apparently we had it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me how, but uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. We were able to use studio musicians for everything. So any idea that we come up with, no matter how crazy it was, it would always work because the musicians were so great, you know, and. Uh, laid it down put it out the door it was it was a lot of fun she could sing anything you had to get her to sing she was really good and of course all the backup musicians which kim was instrumental and you know if we were going to do a zydeco song he would get all the famous zydeco guys from louisiana to play on it you know and just piece of cake just recorded it was it was fun doing that album wow so can i can i just share this quote i found what? because as we're talking Earl, one of the things that impresses me a lot, especially talking with you today, is your constant reiteration of, I'm a musician in a band. I'm a musician that listens as yeah. I'm producing. Yeah. And so when people highlight your musicianship outside of the studio, I think it's very interesting. But this took it to a different level. And now when you were talking about the Kensington Market and the Jackets, <laughs> I found this quote on a Sparks fan site. Oh, okay. yeah. So uh, this is the quote. <clears throat> During live gigs, Earl Mankey would wear glitter suits and attempted to be everyone's favorite English poof guitar player. There you are. It's thing my was, job. Just doing my job. <laughs> funny thing was, Earl Mankey's suits were always a size too small. <laughs> hair in an exaggerated Rod Stewart shag. Earl Mankey knew every move in the book, the Mark Boland pout, the Pete Townsend leap, the calculated pretty squish, <laughs> and the aggressive Jeff Beck posturing, but with a Gibson SG standard instead of a Fender Stratocaster. That's the only place I fell down, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but the Gibson... Was was that your your? Yeah, that was actually choice? we got a signing bonus, uh, and so we, we were able to buy amps and the uh, Gibson for me and my brother, uh, uh, as before we went to England, and then uh, we went to England. We bought we bought all Marshalls, and then we went to England, and everybody laughed at us uh, to, because why would you buy Marshalls? That's that's just you know that. That's for the punters. <laughs> That's uh, and and in fact, we did a we did a gig with the Kinks, and uh, the Kinks uh, also used high watts, 
And so they talked us into getting high watts. And so we bought high watts while we were over there and used high watts for the rest of our time. So I still have that high watt. They're great amps, by the way. They might be better than Marshall's. It could be, depending on your sound you're looking for. All right. Well, this isn't a Paisley Underground, but I did want to bring up one of my favorite records that you've worked on um, and ask a little bit about this because I was wondering what it would be in this, like in the studio working with Joe Nolte. Oh, so, yeah. So that that was um, oh, Jenna and Innuendos. I love this CD. Yeah. Oh. Do you recall working on that? I do. I do. I'm I'm embarrassed because I'm trying to think of his name. Who's the main guy in the last? Joe Nolte. Joe. Joe. Okay, Joe. Yeah, uh, Joe. Joe and his family. I've worked with various members of his band and his family at all all different times. And uh, but that time that Joe came in, uh, he it was just Joe. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It was just Joe laying down tracks, and then later the family would come in. Oh, yeah. So okay. So I'll I'll do the whole number on this. So Joe would come back from whatever uh, job that he hated that he'd been working during the day, and he'd come and he'd take off his clothes and he'd put on his skater shorts, and uh, and he'd you know he'd be dressed up for the for the session, and then we'd go through and 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 he was you know he was totally in control. He you know he knew what he wanted to do and and the guitar parts and everything, and we laid down all that we could. Uh, and then uh, when he would invite the rest of the band in, namely, uh, oh, there would be his brother and Christy, and I can't remember all the members, but I know it was in, in my studio room here, and they filled up most of the room while they basically argued with each other. <laughs> and uh, it was a very, very, not, not evil like fighting, but this, this is family stuff, just arguing about what it should be and so on. Uh, they were all nice about it, but uh, they, they typically would have arguments with Joe and maybe between them as well. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, and then they, they would sing the, uh, the backup and things and so on that they had come to do. And uh, roughly speaking, that's all I remember. And, you know, and then Joe and I would mix it and for all I know, that album you you held up has things that we did, and maybe things that Joe did somewhere else. I don't, you know, is I I'm I'm just the guy that the band shows up, we do our stuff, and they leave. And if they get a record deal or who knows what's going to happen, I never know. And uh, that's how much I know about that album. Just for clarification, when you said that Joe Nolte came in and was just recording the guitar parts, were you recording to a click track? The so uh, oh no no I'm I'm undoubtedly finished forgetting a whole lot. We it was a band. Okay, it was, okay. It was a band, and uh, uh, oh I remember one of the guys in his band. I hope I have the right organization because there were different groupings of multi types. Yes. But one of the I think it was the bass player was Larry Mankey, uh, same last name as me. I've never wow. met anyone with my same last name. <laughs> and, uh, and he was there, but yeah, they you know they did the basic tracks too. But that's usually a frantic thing that would go by. In those days, it was it was in the house. The drums had set up in the kitchen, and the guys had set up set up in the living room and the bathroom and everything, and they'd all be separated. And usually, it would go down all in one day, and then they'd leave, and I'd never see him again. So, so my main <laughs> memory of the album was Joe. You know. Okay, so in the background, the background sessions. So all of your recordings are there at your house. Um, I've seen it listed as Earl's Psychedelic Shack, Earl's Psychedelic <laughs> Kitchen, all kinds of different names. But did you ever think to get 
like a building, rent a building, buy a building? Or yeah, just... I, I tried that early on and it didn't work. Uh, the, uh, oh heck, uh, names, 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 names. Anyway, there were some guys that I was going to have a studio with in the Valley. They were, uh, uh, let's see, I, I think they played in Soft Machine and they played with Todd and uh, the drummer and a bass player. Uh, the, the, and their dad was a comedian on TV. Wow. Uh, uh, it, it, oh, oh, uh, uh, Hunt and Tony Sales. Sales, yeah, Soupy yes. Sales Sons. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah, so I almost had a, almost had a, a studio in the Valley with the, the Sales Brothers. And they took me out to lunch at the at the coffee shop, and we went and we checked the place out. And then uh, a jet airplane flew over the top of the studio, and I said, "This isn't going to work." And so that was that was kind of the end of that bit. So we it might have worked, but I, it never did. It just set it up in my house, and it was way better. I'd always recorded at home my whole life anyway, so more comfy there. So recording at home is kind of commonplace nowadays, but when you started, I think it had to have been something that's been very yeah. unique. Yeah, that was something that kept us from getting record deals. You know, people would say, uh, you can't record a record in your home. We're going to have to re-record it in the studio. And uh, that happened a lot of times. And in my estimation, it was never it would never be as good in the studio uh, because it, usually because it was the second time you've done it. But uh, there is a thing. I don't know if you've been in bands, you know, you just, you discuss everything you're doing. Well, unless you're a certain sort of band where you just toss it out, but you know, you spend a lot of time in a band working things out. And finally, after doing it for three weeks and it didn't sound very good, then one day it's finally working and we must've found the key, you know, and then that's the version you've got, you know, and if you have, if you're recording at home, you can keep on until you get to that point, you know, and uh, I just, uh, well, I've, I've recorded a lot of albums at outside studios uh, that were supported by record labels, again, because a record label would never want to use the one that you do at home. And it's, I always, always disappointed going to the big studios because, you know, you, you break a string or, you know, something on the tape recorder doesn't work or you name it, a hundred thousand things that can happen during a, the stretch of a session. And you go and you say, oh, there's this problem. And no, this is just what we do. You're going to have to stick within these, these bounds that we have, you know, and you can only do this and we don't have that. We, if you, if you needed a, uh, I don't know if you needed a garbage can lid to pound on. We don't have one of those, but uh, you know, you know, it's it's home recording. It's the thing that makes it fun, and you can't do that at the big studios. Everything at the big studio tends to have a certain lack of ambience and a certain really present clarity, and that's all you can get. Beyond that, you could be anywhere. You know. So uh, anyway, I like recording at home better. Nice. And we like your home recordings. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Many of them. So, um, Ronnie, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't mention this one. Well, no, I was about to say, and, and Jeff, I'm going to one-up you holding up these records, and I got to disconnect for a second to do this. Okay. okay. All right. So, Ronnie is famous for doing show and tell, Earl. So, oh. Uh, oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> I wish I had No, I don't want to say I wish I had one of those because somebody will probably send me one. Yes. I like it so yeah, I like it so much. I have really it framed. Yeah, I have it framed. It's one of my favorite records, Earl. That's great. I love that. Um and you produced and, and engineered that record. Oh, so my, it's just my, you. my check out those CDs back there. Yeah. There. Yes. Okay, those are that's since the CD era. 
those are albums that I've done. And you can't yeah. see them, but there's a there's an L there's an LP rack down there that are LPs that I've done down there. So uh, those the, if I want to look back on history, I usually go and dig out a, a CD or an LP. So uh, nice. That's, that's 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 my reward. <laughs> um, and and you don't have to if this is uncomfortable, you don't have to talk about it, Earl. But um, the the you had a different drummer on that record, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's more that they don't want to talk about it. Than yeah, me. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the original, the, the original drummer who got the band together and 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 a tr and talked to me and made it all happen. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of my connection to the band. Uh, yeah. And even he, you know, he every band I work with, I try to find out what they like and who their favorite people are uh, on recordings and how they recorded it and what they'd like their recording to sound like. Well, he was my guy for 2020, and yeah. and I and and the you know the the, the other two 2020 guys, they're terrific musicians. They can really sing, they can really play, but they didn't have the artistic vision that he had you know the, the he really directed us down a certain path uh that unfortunately when it came time to record the album uh the the other two guys and this is to their credit they weren't happy with his drumming you know he he wasn't the greatest drummer in the world although he you know i, I hate to say it i probably would have let it go because i usually take bands for what they are you know either they have a good drummer or they don't you know yeah. and uh anyway they weren't happy we we recorded i think uh before we did the real album we did four songs i think at capitol records and and that original drummer played on them and i thought they worked out great no so i figured we can do this for a whole rest of the album but when we went to do the body of the album then the other two guys weren't happy and um and so they had a friend from back in uh, oklahoma i think he was and he was a he was a great drummer and phil seymour Phil, the great Seymour, Phil Seymour, yeah. yes. Yeah, and uh, and it, they were right. I mean, I'm sure glad he was our drummer, <laughs> but yeah. uh, that was how that happened. I don't, I don't, I, I, if there was bad vibes, you know, they didn't show it to me, so I don't know. And then, you know, yeah. one day, one day that he was there and one day he wasn't, but uh, I've I certainly heard in the past that he wasn't happy about not being in the band after that. So uh, that's as much as I know, personally speaking. Yeah, yeah, he didn't, he didn't play on the next, so, so he didn't it's a it's a good it's I, I like how people don't realize sometimes the best musician in the band or the worst musician in the band might be the guy who makes things go like you were That's saying it. so yeah. so so many times it's you know and you can find in every band there's somebody who is the mover and yeah. from my point of view if i if i stay close to the mover he'll be having bands for the next 20 years you know he'll come up with some new uh, organization you know that that wants to record hopefully with me and uh, you you have to have those guys in the band. They, you know, the three o'clock. Well, I shouldn't say it's just about three o'clock, but all of these bands that are kind of the Paisley type bands, they're real music fans, you know? And, you know, I'm a music fan, but I came up through the 50s and 60s and early 70s as a, you know, turn on the radio and hear what you're, you know, like what you're hearing. And I, you know, I didn't take it from a, from a, a record collector standpoint i just liked the bands or i didn't and you know if they were guitar bands i liked them usually that's about all it took but but the guys in paisley underground and and most of these people we're talking about who are the leader of the band they're they're fans they know all the, like you guys you, you know all of these records you know and who played on them and so on well if you were in a band that would be the kind of band you would have you know there's no doubt about it and it takes somebody like that to 
to get enough of momentum in a band to make it worth listening to. Anyway, that's just a yeah. long way of saying I didn't partake of that, but I required that. You know, we did we did a thing with three o'clock. Uh, I, you guys saw it a couple of weeks ago, you know, where they were talking about, uh, you know, who who made these these songs happen, especially 16 tambourines, because that's, you know, that's the one that I had the most input on. And and it, it definitely wasn't genius on my part. Again, I'm like a guy in a band who knows how to record and who wants to try every trick he knows on the recording end of it. But they were they were such fans that they always knew the you know what the coolest beats were and and you know what the riffs were and when I might get on their case about oh this could never work but then then they they come up with something that works you know and it was they were just really creative and I'm not I'm not trying to puff them up here I was lucky that they were all creative and just had an artistic bent to them you know and were such music fans you know such fans of bands probably most of which I didn't even know. So it was lucky on my part, you know. So anyway, that's it for three o'clock. I think they're really great. So I have one, since you brought up the three o'clock, I mean, it, it had to be done, Earl. So one <laughs> song I wanted to talk about, <laughs> um, A Day in Erotica, uh, off of 16 Tamarines. It's very psychedelic, a lot of different things going on. Do you remember recording that? Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, most of it would be, you know, with the, anything that I do, it's like, oh, how can I make this more from the 60s? Although I didn't think of it that way, because to me, the 60s was how artistic, how creative can you be? Can you come up with a weird sound like phasing that no one's ever done before? Of course, after the 60s went by, that wouldn't be a new thing. But that was always the way that I was looking at it and trying to make it sound. And so we got the tracks down to pretty much do that. But Michael, who wrote the, the words and the melodies and so on, had had two approaches. And I think everybody's heard this, but he had two approaches. And we couldn't really be satisfied with either one of them. It didn't seem to, to go over the edge like the, a lot of the other things did in the song. And, uh, and so then just one time we had them both on together. And uh, I, they say that I thought of it, and I say that they thought of it. So I think everybody in the room just said, whoa, that's cool. Let's do that. I, I, that's how I'm going to lay it down but uh, but it was pretty neat it, it it made what might have been an interesting vocal and another interesting vocal into something that whoa what is this you know so i thought it worked pretty well very well yeah that song nice. stood out for me one last question for me and then if you guys have anything so uh, you've talked um a little bit about your production and how you approach um almost like being a member of a band um and you like um, the band recording live as much as possible, or together, I should say. Um, yeah. How do you describe like your production style other than that? Um, when well, you I've been told by, I remember one specific guy and who, who said, uh, well, we had to go with a different producer for this next round because you were just like, you know, like a good buddy or an uncle or somebody in the band, you know, who, you know, would just, you know, help us get along and get this down right we need a producer who says do this you're not going to get a hit record unless you have these backgrounds and you know and that sort of stuff i've never been comfortable with telling anybody who was in a band what their band was i mean they knew coming into me what their band was and for me to tell them they have to make these changes to be successful like that's just crazy you know so that's that's pretty much what if you were a guitar player in a band 
and you didn't feel like it was your band and you were the leader, that's probably what the attitude you'd have, you know? I mean, you've been in a band, right, Jeff? Yes. I mean, yep. you know, well, you're mostly just happy that you're in a room with guys playing and nobody's fighting. <laughs> and when they start fighting, then then the band breaks up. So <laughs> that's that's where I stand. As long as we don't fight, it's okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Good rule. Well, well, Earl, we're gonna let you go, but but we'll close with this. Um, two weeks ago, you were back on stage for one song at the uh, yeah, Nuggets thing. How, how Danny Benair got me to go on stage. Danny Benair, let's give it to Danny. And yes. I, I've been in, you know, I loved Pandemic because I had nothing coming and all I had to do was play with my toys. <laughs> Best two years of my life. And, uh, <laughs> and then Danny got me out of the house, you know, to get on stage. And that took me to that, uh, to the uh, uh, Wild Honey thing. And that took me to you guys, you know. So uh, thanks to Danny. Yes, but I'm not. You. I'm not going to do anything else. <laughs> Everybody has asked me, "Oh, are you out of retirement?" No, I, yeah. no, I'm, I'm retired. Don't want to do any bands anymore. Yeah. So you're, you, I love you, but not going to do it. <laughs> so you are. You are officially retired. I am officially retired. Yeah. Well, Soraya, with that, I. We'll see. We'll see, Earl. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Any anything I do, it'll be at home on my own. That's uh, and, and probably enough. no one will ever hear it. So there you go. Well, you know, we <laughs> can always space. ask. I got, space, always... I got space in my record collection here, so it, it, <laughs> one slot. <laughs> Early, I know um, this was. Uh, it took something to get you to to join us, and we. It's been a discussion that Soraya and I have been wanting to have for four years now. Yes. But um, we re we really do appreciate it and great stories, Earl. Really oh, cool. great stories. Yeah, and I know Ronnie's going to be thinking about the uh, underwear that belonged to Queen. <laughs> no doubt. That was a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, your show's been great. I've heard all of the shows, and I again every time I heard anything from Paisley Underground, I said, "Boy, I'm glad I'm not on there because I don't remember any of that." So uh... yeah. Well, you <laughs> you do. Uh, don't be so hard on yourself, Earl. You were uh, fantastic uh, here. We couldn't get you to quiet down. <laughs> that is true, isn't it? <laughs> In all honesty, we appreciate it, Earl. And uh, enjoy your retirement. And um, I hope it comes to an end and somebody can talk. <laughs> but oh, yeah. Okay, it, don't enjoy, hold uh, enjoy. Me and Danny. Me and Danny will get him out again. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate it. And thank yeah. you for sharing stories. All thank right. you. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. All right. We hope to Take talk care. to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. See you soon. Yo. Ronnie, what do you think? Jeff. Earl Mankey. And thank you for Sorry. making this happen because we know that um, he was apprehensive about coming on when we talked to him. And then you talked to him again. Thank you. Which we just touched on. And how funny is that? Earl, Earl thought he wasn't going to remember anything, be interesting. Uh, you know, like... And, 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 Literally, we, we we wound him up and let him go, right? Like it was fantastic. Yeah, Earl absolutely. is my new favorite. No offense to you two, Earl's my new favorite person. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of yeah. the things that I mean was blowing me away. He's telling these stories, and I think the first name drop was Queen, and I. <laughs> but but it's his style, his style of production, even him as a music. He he really downplays his contributions, but when you look at all that he's done, 
it's so impressive and it's such a variety of artists and for someone to say you know I just walk in I want people to just play together and he really downplays his style as a product as a producer but we've got the proof right and then the whole 2020 album that could not have been easy to manage as you're seeing two band members really uh, the word he used was um sorry I was taking notes that they just weren't happy and I'm thinking as a producer that's got to be super hard to manage that still get something out and then no boom uh these two guys are already bringing in somebody else and I mean it's a whole thing yeah no you got to manage the personalities too which he yeah uh, illustrated in several of the stories there the last I mean um every band every band has their dynamics like that right like and uh yeah some some sometimes the opinions are strong and yeah it, it's it's part of the part of uh, that would be part of his job but yeah I mean um you know you said it sorry we barely scratched the surface on what he's produced if you look at his credits I mean you know we barely got after the after 1990 is when he did all that stuff in his house and like it's it's a huge list where you know the lazy cowgirls and you know all sorts of stuff yeah so uh yeah uh possum dixon and uh mm -hmm. yeah jupiter effect and permanent green light and and come on he engineered elvis yeah no, elvis like, look we didn't he talked to, he brought up Elton John, but we, we didn't get to talk about blue moves like he engineered but yeah a, a lot of blue moves. it's just it's, it's astounding yeah see and this is why uh we need to invite him back <laughs> for yeah, episodes yeah. two and three and four or you know he can invite us to the psychedelic shack yes that's but, a good idea field trip yeah. um <laughs> yeah yeah i would yeah. do it in a heartbeat yeah we're like not averse to that he worked on don't don't let the sun go down on me which means he was there when elton got mad and, and made that sang that line weird that stayed in the song the don't discard me part Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. Elton was mad when he did that. Yeah, that's that's lore. Um <sighs> yeah. What a guy. Insane. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me in on this, you guys. No, no, no. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for calming his fears that we that all would be well and it done with love, warmth, yes. and just absolute respect because I don't I mean Jeff and I are so focused on you know this one tiny scene but earl's imprint is on so many yeah and uh you cannot deny you know he's a legend in the business he is he's his imprint is on so many bands and so many albums it's just whew. yep and so Thank just you, so Ronnie nice and, of course no no at the end of the night i just said look i'm gonna be in on this interview don't worry <laughs> we, he's like I, and again he said the you know i'm not gonna have any i'm not gonna remember i'm like don't worry i'll we'll handle this <laughs> okay but now we seriously need help because i want to know first of all hats off to earl mankey because he's a ucla alum like me boom boom <laughs> but i want to know who was this heavy metal band that sparks played a show with in houston yes i want to know too um... <laughs> we need some sparks fans who know the history Please let us know. I want to know who that band was. I'm going to try to figure it out. Their fans were absolute jackasses. Because uh, I'm going to try to figure it out. Because that's my hometown, as you you two know. And um, 
I'm pretty certain that happened at a place called Liberty Hall. Um, I was going to say, uh, I wish we knew somebody who liked Sparks and that was from Houston. Yep, yep, that's that's me. Um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll 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 all get on the internet and uh, see what we can find. But um, nice, nice. Yeah, great story. And in this, everyone's seen the Sparks documentary, but that that story yeah. about in the in the documentary is one of my favorite parts um because uh somebody says that 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 ron was very uh ron, ron was very concerned and then ron looks in the camera and goes was i <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so blood oh, tripping down and, the, yeah. and now we need to find this cigarettes album no all the things or, he's mentioning there should be an Earl Mankey box set of, of unreleased recordings from the seventies. You know, you know, he, there's tons of, you know, just knowing him and knowing he's an engineer and then how he kind of goes about his business, you know, there's tons of stuff sitting there. Yep. Yep. Uh, needs, needs to happen. Ronnie, I yep. don't know. Put, you know, <laughs> pick up the, pick up the Earl Mankey VIP phone. Yeah. Say, hey Earl, we'd love to come and hear a bunch of stuff that no one else has ever heard. But yes. seriously, this cigarettes thing, just I'm thinking of that lineup and I'm all, so it's Earl Mickey, his brother, Jim, Danny Wilde, and then um, Ian. Ian. Ian Ainsworth. Yeah. Ian Ainsworth. I'm all, I want to hear that. Yeah. Right <laughs> after the quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. I don't, yeah. Too many good stories. And man, uh, he's your favorite person. I think he's become our favorite person too. No offense, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, it's all making, good i get it up at the top <laughs> my god this is too good yes yep thank you for and uh show us show us that poster again that beautiful oh, the, sorry the beautiful piece of 2020 artwork because that's yeah. artwork hang on i gotta disconnect it, so or else i'll screw this up no don't screw it up so when ronnie, i wanted to see it one more time when ronnie pulls out his big bloody hell look at that that is fabulous Oh, child. Ronnie, I pulled out my little one and then you upstaged me and pulled out your big one. <laughs> Wait, he's not hearing you. Well, still. And, yeah, I can't hear now you. Now you can uh, say it. Now I can now hear you. Now you can say it. Go for it, Jeff. All I said is I pulled out my little one and you had to upstage me and pull out your big one. <laughs> always, Jeff. Ain't it always like always. that? Always. Yeah. And not to blow my own horn. Okay. Is that proper to say after? Um, yes. Uh, uh, there's a reissue of the two 2020 albums that came out on CD on Real Gone about 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. And not only did my our friend Steve Schnee write the liner notes, but I got a credit for providing memorabilia. And um, they, in addition to some buttons and flyers I had, which I have some, I have some here, oh, Andy. Um, I I let them open a sealed copy of the second album, Look Out, because they didn't have a good copy to use for their artwork. Wow. So I, I'm like, okay, you can open my sealed copy. Wow. Use it. So I had a small part of that. And um nice. yeah. Ronnie. Yeah. You're 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 a good man. And uh and I'm friends of sorts with Steve and Ron, and I hope they're not mad about uh us getting a, a little recording. Talk about the uh yeah, the band there. So yeah. Poor Mike. <laughs> Poor Mike. Yeah, no, no, Mike. Uh yeah, but um, I'm friends of sorts with him too, and I, I, I'm, yeah, he 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 deserves more credit. And, yeah. So. Twenty twenty is a great band. Yes. Yep. One of my favorite right. records. Yep. 
All right, Ronnie. Well, until we we do this again, we appreciate it. And no, thanks you. Yeah, thanks you guys. Would not have uh, happened without you. Thank you so that, much. That was a blast. So. Oh my God! Great. All right. All right. We'll see you now, soon. Okay. Be nice. All we right. will. Yes. All right. Uh, that went. I am blown away. You know, one of the things I want to I wanted to bring up, but I just didn't because Earl's words were enough. Were, you know, he said a couple of things at this uh, three o'clock panel about Baroque down um, here in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. and, and it just goes back to his style of production. You know, uh, someone mentioned uh, a song where Mickey Mariano was just kind of going off and he said, most of the sounds are Mickey. My job was to say, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, and then when he told the story of uh, being told, uh, yeah, you're more like a buddy and we needed someone to come down hard. But then you look at his credits and you say, okay, well, then there's something still to his production style where he's able to get very good work out of the artists that he works with. Yeah. Yeah. Some artists don't need that push, right? Yeah. Need that direction, some push. So it's like, um, what, what chemistry, you know, works for different artists, you know, might not work for others. So right. I can see how some artists might need that, that person that's going to, sure. Um, push the band to a, a different level because they're not there right but um yeah but we really appreciate all of his work and uh, following up on our next episode Soraya the plan and it, it all comes back to this album to the three o'clock so we went to the panel um if you haven't listened to it yet the most recent episode by our friends from the JFJ conspiracy podcast they cover this record too so that gave us an idea because we love this record, Soraya. So we reached out to them and we asked them if we could meet up with them and uh, kind of share an episode, do a split episode. So we'll be meeting up with JFJ Conspiracy. And um, uh, this was a trigger point. So the albums that, or the songs on here that aren't originals by the three o'clock kind of uh, prompted what we're going to do with the JFJ Conspiracy. So there'll be a part one on there feed and a part two on our feed but um we'll be joining them to talk about uh where some of these songs originated from that are not original so stay today, tuned for that yeah oh my gosh today was great jeff and i <laughs> don't want it to end but uh thank you once again to the great ronnie barnett guest host extraordinaire and to the amazing earl mankey and for great his time Earl's yep all right, Jeff. I hate it. I hate that we have to stop, but mi gente agruyar. Ruan, Paisley people. given us gold or you have no idea i'm just yep. smiling because these stories are fantastic 
Cool. Yeah. The, these two have dissected the Paisley Underground, you know, with an inch of, inch <laughs> yeah, of its yeah. life. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Okay. As I said, I've listened to all of those. That's the reason I decided to come on. <laughs> so can I 